Let's pray. Our Father, for this afternoon, we are grateful for being with us. Thank you for causing us to meet the way we have. We do ask that truly we may sing to you as we have. We may worship you in truth and in spirit in each and every activity. Thank you for the singing. Grateful for enabling us to give to you the reading of your word. We do ask our Father, even in asking thee to bless us through prayer, we do plead that please bless us. Grant us your presence. Speak to us. Excite us and encourage us. We pray for the offerings and tithes that have been given, that you would be gracious to bless them, and that you will bless the hands that have given even more abundantly, that we may give even the next time. Thank you that you are our God and that you are a good God. Bless now the preaching of your word and the listening to the same. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm number 73. Psalm number 73. Read verse 1, verse 21 to 28 as well. Psalm verse 1. Then verses 21 to 28. I trust that you know generally the contents of that psalm. We'll be discussing verse 1 in the context of the whole psalm. Psalm number 73 and reading verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. In between verse 1 and really 21 to the end, we have the complaint. We have the wrestling. And the wrestling was the fact that the wicked were succeeding well, the righteous appeared like we are being treated badly. They were not being treated according to who God is. Before we get into the text, 
is song number 10 here. I wasn't sure whether we know it, so just read it. That also simply addresses what we are focusing on. Number 10 from the Baptist hymn book. God is good. We come before him so that we may sing his praise. Give thanks for all his goodness as we learn his wondrous ways. God is great. We come before him so that we may have, we may bow in prayer, seeking strength to fight our battles, knowing he is everywhere. God is wise. We come before him so that we may know his law, learning from the men of old time how to serve him more and more. God is good. God is great. God is wise. One of the elders is known primarily for that phrase. Uh, when something good happens or a blessing comes away or a way to simply praise the Lord, he basically just says it in one statement, God is good. And it is that statement in verse, seven, in verse 1, chapter 73 of Psalm, that I would like us to reflect on. The fact that God is good. When you are going through difficulties, going through challenges, vexations of life, that many a time we shift focus to reflecting on his goodness and as it were to reflect on a perceived injustice of God. The badness of God. As if that was true, but when you go through hard times, the question many a time, uh, but God, why are you doing this to me? In other words, are you sure I deserve this? Don't I deserve better? Are you sure you are doing good to me and for me? Are you sure you're living up your attribute of being good? And what is interesting about Psalm 73, that's exactly the context. The psalmist is wrestling with a perceived injustice of God. So listen to what he says from verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious, envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. And he's basically referring that it looks like the righteous actually are the ones more in trouble than the wicked people. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And implication, they are, stric they are not stricken by God. But it looks like the righteous are being stricken. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Their follies, people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? 
Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. That's the complaint. Or that's the wrestling with which Asaph is dealing with. And it is in this context of wrestling that he makes the statement, truly God is good. That even though I'm wrestling with these things, the truth is God is good. So Psalm 73, Psalm of Asaph relates the inner mental struggle of the author when he compared his life as one of committed to Yahweh with the lives of his acquaintances who did not put God first. He confessed discouragement. In further reflection, he realized the sinfulness of his carnal longings, finally explained that the contrast between these two lifestyles enabled him to keep a proper view of life in perspective. What is interesting about this psalm is that all the conflicts of the author's mind is in the context of the author's affirmation that God is good. In the maze of difficulties and challenges of life, we tend to forget who God is. So it is important to regularly remind ourselves of who God is. And this evening, let us remind ourselves of one of the attributes of God affirmed in Psalm 73 verse 1. Surely, certainly, using old versions, yet... God is good. Firstly, considering this attribute, the affirmation. The affirmation, and this is where we will spend more time, and on the last one, ones very briefly, basically the evidence, uh, as far as the passage is concerned, of God's goodness, and thirdly, the response uh, to God's goodness. But the affirmation is what I would like us to slow down and reflect on. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Certainly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Yet, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph began this psalm by affirming God's goodness to his people, specifically those whose hearts are pure because they seek to, God follow, to follow God faithfully. That's what he begins with. He affirms this truth. In the context of this affirmation, he then wrestles with the reality that he is going through. It is many times, if you subscribe to the five points of Calvinism, 
These are some of the struggles of that acronym. And one of the areas of struggle is limited atonement. Jesus died only for his sheep. Well, how then do you reconcile limited atonement to the universal invitation of the gospel? For God desires that no one perishes, but that all be saved. The truth, you are Calvinistic, that you believe in limited atonement. But I'm yet to come across one who says, I've never struggled. Even with the supposed, as you speak of, because of our thinking, the moment we say limited, he died for his sheep, it excludes others, and that's not fair. The Apostle Paul deals with that. Well, the psalmist begins with this attribute, this attribute, God is good. And then he goes on to wrestle with this. Look, I know this is true, but look, the things that we are going through, they actually paint a completely different picture. Because if God is good, he must be doing good to his children. But it looks like he's actually afflicting us left, right, and center. And yet the wicked are the ones he's extending his goodness to. So Asaph began this psalm by affirming God's goodness to his people, specifically those whose hearts are pure because they seek to follow God faithfully. There is, uh, all those that comment on it, particularly old uh, commentators uh, using the old translation, yet uh, all acknowledge that there is an abruptness. There is a suddenness in beginning this psalm. That what you hope to happen is that you first begin with the wrestling, then give the reasoning, and then at the end you would probably say, look, even though I have said this, here is my conviction. But he wants to begin with the conviction and then present his wrestling. And so it's almost like, look, okay, I'm going to talk about this, but God is good. And let's follow and deal with this. So there is an abruptness of how the psalmist begins. And this has to do with the fact that he had been thinking of the prosperity of the wicked. But... According to Matthew Henry, while he was thus musing, the fire burned, and at last he spoke by way of check to himself for what he had been thinking of. Like you're processing stuff, and then you check yourself and say, okay, while I process this, before I pen this, before I utter any word, God is good. However, here is what I am wrestling with. However things may be, Asaf affirms that God is good. And it's important for us with Asaf to have that understanding. However bad things look, we must never even entertain a thought that inclines to indicate that something is not good with God. We may not explain the circumstances we might be going through terrible pain. But even in those difficult situations when it's very dark, 
we still must affirm that God is good. So however things may be, Asaf affirms that God is good. And notice one of the situations in which he makes this statement. Verse 13. He's lived a holy life. He's lived a faithful life. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Why? For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Implication by God. Even when I have sought to pursue a holy life, my experience is being stricken. My experience is beatings. My experience is rebuke. It's in that context. He says, look, while this is what I'm wrestling with, I've already this, made the statement though. If you are to ask me what is my view of God, how do I understand God, even in this kind of feeling or thought pattern, I have already made my affirmation surely. God is good. Though wicked people receive many of the gifts of his providential bounty, yet we must not own that he is not good. We must never even think of it. Yet we must own that he is, in a, in a peculiar manner, good to his people. They have special treatment from him which others do not have. The author of this psalm, contending against the judgment of carnal sense and reason, began by exhorting the righteousness and the goodness of God. At the risk of stumbling some of you, please allow me to ask a few questions. When you are sick, is God still good? Is he? When you have no food, is he still good? When your house, God forbid, burns down, is he still good? When you get fired, God forbid, and justly from your workplace, is God still good? That's what the psalmist is wrestling with. It begins with this statement of conviction. Truly. Surely, God is good. That does not necessarily remove the wrestling with what we perceive as unfair, unjust, not good, bad, or evil. Author of this psalm was contending against the judgment of carnal sense and reason began by exhorting the righteousness and goodness of God. The author at the very onset, even though he would wrestle with God's providences, he affirms almost in an exclamatory tone, certainly, truly, surely God is good. Author is showing that although God may appear to neglect his people, 
may appear not to be good to the eye of mere human logic and reason, may seem to neglect his servants, yet he always embraces them with his kindness and his goodness. Asaf affirms the fact that God is good emphatically. Surely, God is good. Truly, certainly, God is good. He also affirms, as the alternate reading underlines, there is goodness, there is a sense in which it's restrictive. And the sense is, yet, God is only good. That is, you can't think of God in any other sense. And those of you that are Hebrew scholars investigate part of the possibility of the translation. It's not only that surely is good, but that this is only description in his relation to us, good or bad. This is the only description that we can describe him by. He's good, and this is only, not that he has no other attributes, but in the context of his relationship, whether this is fair, sound, you know, is this okay? Uh, in that kind of context, he's good. God to his people is only good, nothing else. That is not to say this is the only attribute he has, but that his dealings with his people is only good. And even what appears bad, God is only doing it because he's good and for the good of his covenant ones. Even when God permits certain things to happen in your life, that appear from our perspective as terrible evil, wicked, bad things. And they may be, in the context of Job, God would be permitting the evil one to do these things, but Job cannot say, God is not good. No, God can only say, his name be glorified. God is good. Even in the context of COVID, God is good. God can never act unjustly or unkindly to his children. His goodness to them is beyond dispute and it is not diluted. You can never say of God regarding his children. We can say probably to our parents and some parents are bad parents even to their own children. It can never be said of God that is bad to his people. God is good. I think there is a statement we say, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Literally. But I would like to state again, that does not Mean We will not wrestle with the tough situations. The psalmist did. And hopefully that at the end of the wrestling, we will conclude as the psalmist did. 
Apostle Paul, in affirming God's goodness and his dealings with us as good, in a portion we know very well, he writes, and we know that in all things, quoting from the NIV, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, or all things work together for good for those who love God. Esaph demonstrates in this psalm that the problem is not the affirmation of the truth, but a person's perspective in light of such truth. Esaph knows this is true. But in dealing with this truth, as it affects his life, he wrestles, he's troubled, he's discouraged, he, he has many questions. But the truth still remains true. As I've laid down at the very beginning of this psalm, the great principle which he was resolved to stand by and never to abandon while he was dealing with the temptation stated, particularly in verses 2 to 14. Envy of the wicked. There is a truth he would never let go. You notice that as you read the Old Testament, you will find that Old Testaments reasoned this way. They had a truth. They held on to. Then they moved on to wrestle with life in general. Job, when he was entering into such a temptation, fixed for his principle the omniscience of God. Job 24, we read, Times are not hidden from the Almighty, quoting from the King James Version. The New King James Version writes, Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? Now, the ESV and the NIV and other versions have a struggle in translating this. I go with the NIV in wrestling with the original language. But the sense communicated in Job's reasoning in chapter 24 is simply this. Look, since times are not hidden from the Almighty, times are not hidden from him, he knows everything. Why do those who know him see not his days? Jeremiah's principle is the justice of God. Jeremiah 12 verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Notice a kind of contradiction. I know you are righteous, but I still go ahead and complain. Well, why are you complaining if you convinced all he does is right? What's the source of your complaint? You only complain when there is a perceived injustice. You know, when your salary is increased, the only reason you complain is because you think the percentage of increment is not justified. So instead of 25%, they give you 2.1%. And you're thinking, Chimona, nothing if. That's why you complain. You do not complain. Uh, are the deacons here? Uh, this is important. When they double your salary. Batembo, you are here? 
You know, when this year ends and the elders receive pastor's salary has been quadrupled, now you don't complain. You, you look at the deacons and say, this is, these are the, yeah, need to pray for such men who quadruple. Now, if they times it by four and they hear, you know, pastor is really complaining, four times. What's wrong with this man? Unless he's very spiritual, he's compared his salary to the church coffers. Then he might say, but how can they give me 80% when there are still people going to hell? But Jeremiah is convinced God is righteous, but he complains. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Who do all who are treacherous thrive? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Notice again he's wrestling. I know that you are righteous. But when I look at these wicked people, they are prospering. And here is my question, why? When I look at all these treacherous people, they are thriving. But look, I do know you are righteous, but here is my complaint. He's convinced that God is a God of justice. Habakkuk's principle is the principle that God is holy. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong... But here is what I'm wrestling with. Why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? I know you are holy and you would not do anything unholy, but here is the situation. Why are you doing nothing when traitors and people who are wicked, are swallowing up more righteous than themselves. All I'm stating is that as you read the scriptures, this is right across the scriptures. The fact that we affirm one of his attributes or one of the doctrinal truths does not mean that wrestlings can't come, does not mean we can't raise questions to God. If we are being passed by when good things are coming, we can affirm you are good, but I don't understand. I don't understand why all these things seem to come my way. Hopefully you don't mean they should go to others, but simply that you're wrestling with these issues. The psalmist here, his principle is that God is good. And yes, God is good, but then also wrestles with how the wicked are prospering. With the psalmist's affirmation and his wrestling, what principal lessons can we learn from this? Firstly, that there are truths which cannot be shaken and which we must be resolved about and to live and die by. They are truths, biblical truths, which, which cannot be shaken 
and which we must be resolved to live and die by. There are truths in the scriptures over which we must put our necks on the block. It doesn't matter what you say. On this issue, I will not move an inch. Not simply by being stubborn, but that this is your conviction. By this truth, I am resolved to live. By this truth, I am resolved to die. Though we may not be able to reconcile all the workings of God's providence, we must believe they are reconcilable. God is good. How come the wicked are prospering? Is this still good? Yes. Can this be explained? Yes, it can. I probably can't explain it now, but I'm not going to recant this truth simply because my finite mind fails to deal with this. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. Does man have responsibility and his actions matter? Yes, they do. Will God accomplish all the plans he has foreordained, each and every single one of them? Will those come to pass? Yes, they will. Will you be held accountable for not obeying God in fulfilling his plans? Yes, you will. So that the Apostle Paul is able to say, I am innocent of your blood. I've done my part. But that if you do not, it can be said that a people who die without Christ, their blood is on your heads. The psalmist is convinced. I may have difficulties. I may wrestle. In my finite mind, I might even border on sinning. But here is the truth. I will not let go. God is good. And surely he is. Beloved, going through difficult times, may I affirm with the psalmist to you, to you and to myself, that God, beloved, is good. God is literally good. One old divine has put it this way. The psalmist declares his confidence in God as it were, plants his foot on a rock, while wrestling with his inward conflicts. Someone else has said, when pondering the mysteries of life, hold on to what you know for sure, and never doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. And one of the things about which you must be certain is your standing with God. That you may not be a theologian per excellence. You may not be the highest systematician. Your memory may not be the best. But of this one truth, you cannot afford to be uncertain that you've trusted Christ, repented of your sins, 
and therefore are saved. Note also, beloved, that good thoughts about God do fortify us against many of Satan's temptations. When you go to Genesis, this is probably one of the problems. Is that Adam and Eve have reached a point, at some point they are probably thinking, maybe God didn't have good intentions. Maybe God is not so good after all. And that's basically the devil's entrance. Now you don't know God. The reason he did this was so that your eyes, which is good, so that you will not be like God. In other words, he didn't have good intentions for you. And they followed the devil. If they did focus on God's goodness, they probably would have not. Truly God is good. He had had many thoughts in his mind concerning the providences of God, but this conviction settled the matter with him. Let me quote here something I couldn't put in the sermon because it was reasonably too um, a chunk, but brief enough to read. Commenting on this conviction, this writer here writes the following. The writer does not doubt this, but lays it down as his firm conviction. It is well to make sure of what we do know, for this will be good anchor hold for us when we are molested by those mysterious storms which arise from the things which we do not understand. Whatever may or may not be the truth about mysterious and inscrutable things, there are certainties somewhere. Experience has placed some tangible facts within our grasp. Let us then cling to these and they will prevent our being carried away by those hurricanes of infidelity which still come from the wilderness. And like my God, however perplexed I may be, let me never think ill of you. If I cannot understand you, let me never cease to believe in you. It must be so. It cannot be otherwise. You are good to those whom you, am, you have made to be good. And where you have renewed this heart, you will not leave it to its enemies. God is good, beloved. God is good. Whatever injustice as a country might be going through, whatever evils be coming out in public, please let's be reminded that God is still good. The hymn writer tells us he's good. This God whose good is also great. This God whose great is also wise. That's the affirmation. That's the affirmation. Even when there are no jobs, again reading in today's newspaper, one of the ladies that graduated from Nkrumah, I think it was 2015 or 18, not sure, she's never found a job. When she started going to South Africa and dealing these things, coronavirus came. She opted to start selling fish. She went to Lusaka, made a terrible loss. She started driving a taxi in Mungu or in Mungu. And she says, look, 
the money I'm making now is not the same as I was making when I was going to South Africa. Even when she's going through all this, sometimes she probably sits and says to herself, what a waste of money. Four years. Maybe it's 10,000 per semester or 15 or 20 times 2, 40 times 4. She looks back and says, what a waste. Is God still good? Yes, he is. How can we explain that? We probably don't know, except we do know in the language of the Apostle Paul, he is working. He is good. The evidence of God's goodness is given to us in verse 21 to 26, and we'll simply read it and make one comment. After he's gone through all this, he's like now he's affirming that here is what I've realized that is good. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. That's how good you are. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. And with this, he's able to say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Even though I was thinking in terms of earthly material things, if I have you, I have the best. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Lord, I've wrestled with these things. Do I have evidence that you are good? Absolutely. Do I desire anything or anyone else other than you? Absolutely not. What is the reason for my thinking like this? My sinfulness. I got lost on the way. I thought and focused on the things that I must never compare with you. But lastly, if God is good, what should be our response? If God is good, what should be our response? We must desire God above anything else and anyone else. We must desire God above anything else and anyone else. The Lord Jesus Christ, who puts it this way, seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God. But even more explicitly, love the Lord your God with all your heart. God first. Listen to how he puts these things. Verse 25. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I may stumble along the way, but when I get up, I will still have you before my sight forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. Verse 28, but for me, but for me it is good. Did, did I at some point want to have wealth? Was I envious of the wicked rich? Yes, I was. Oh, but here is my resolution. But for me it is good to be near God. 
I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your deeds. So firstly, be resolute in your trusting God. Secondly, be determined to proclaim his goodness. Be determined to proclaim his goodness. That's what he closes with. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And the reason I am determined to do this is because you are good. There's nothing of which I will be ashamed to proclaim about you. My burden this evening was simply to say this, beloved, whatever the situation, you know the details of your situations. Here is a biblical affirmation. God is good. Please believe it. Hold on to it. Even as you struggle with the difficulties of life, never think of God as unjust, unfair, as bad, as unliking, as unkind, as ungracious. He is good literally all the time. And literally all the time, God is good. Even when you mess up, his dealings with you will still be with good intentions because that's who he is. The psalmist reminds us, surely, certainly, truly, God is good. Let's explore, experience, delight, even in the most difficult of times, let's not forget that he is good. Amen.